Hello and welcome to Healthy Options, an integrative medicine show. Today we're talking about food. Actually, we're talking about the mystic cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food, written by Denise and Meadow Lynn. Meadow is my guest today. I'm Cynthia Swan. And Meadow is a speaker, a writer, and a chef, a gourmet from birth. Meadow created her first dish when she was only three years old. Impassioned by the tragedy of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989, although she was only 11 years old, Meadow began writing a monthly environmental column for children in an Australian newspaper. At Williams College, Meadow studied French and English literature and received a master's degree in French cultural studies from Columbia University. Following that, she became a French teacher for children ranging in age from 7 to 17. Meadow is the daughter of Denise Lynn, a world-renowned healer and teacher. When she was 18 years old, Meadow, a self-taught chef and a lover of all things edible, started cooking for private events, which she's been doing ever since. Meadow writes a blog called Savor the Day, which is about life, love, and good food. She's the co-author of Quest, a guide for creating your own vision quest, and the mystic cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food. Her articles appear frequently in the Seattle Chinese Times, and she's a contributing writer to In Spirit magazine. Meadow, also a photographer, has photographs that have been recognized both at the state and national level. Meadow lives in California with her dog, cats, and chickens. Her favorite mornings start with a steaming cup of tea and produce plucked from her garden or poached eggs from her hens. To check out her blog, www.savertheday.com. Also, themysticcookbook.com, another website, and also meadow, M-E-A-D-O-W-L-I-N-N, meadowlin.com. And I'll give those, um, those websites again. Well, Meadow, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So we're going to just dive right in. What is a mystic chef? Well, well, goodness, there are many different facets of being a mystic chef and many different layers and levels to it. We, we talk in the mystic cookbook about being a mystic chef, or we, uh, I'm getting on tongue tied. Um, we talk in the mystic cookbook about the book in a way that is, ah, tongue tied again. Oh my goodness, I need more of that morning tea you were talking about. <laughs> Another cup of tea, a little shot of that. Yeah. for becoming a mystic chef, and it need not take a lot of time or energy or even money to enhance your meals, both when you're cooking and when you're eating, that to be a mystic chef, you don't actually have to cook, which I love to cook, and but I know that not everybody does. And it's understanding that by simply doing a few different small activities, you can infuse more joy, more love more abundance into your food and that will have a lasting effect on all areas of your life well I, so um excuse, oh yes go excuse ahead me. well I was going to say I spoke to you a little bit earlier and I said I've never seen a cookbook like this and I'm a I have a collection of cookbooks but this kind of pulls in this not only the physical and the aspects of food but also the spiritual aspect and I've also not seen a more colorful beautifully laid out cookbook. I mean, this is more than a, a cookbook. There's 
there there's so much that you speak to in it. And so I, I one of the things you say particularly that I, I want to uh, converse with you about and for listeners to hear is you say that there is a link between nourishment or physical sustenance and spiritual awakening. And in, in the book, um, you say that food can take us from nourishment to nirvana. Well, for listeners who may not know, what is nirvana? And, um, and how, how does food take us there? Well, let's take a little step back. And one of the things that we write about in the Mystic Cookbook is that although it contains a number of delicious recipes, in my, of course, very unbiased opinion, (laughs) it's really more than a cookbook or a recipe book. It's a cookbook for for life, that we talk about the ways that you savor your meals can actually influence your life, that by savoring your meals, you begin to savor your life more fully, and that when you live deliciously or when you eat delicious food, you begin to live more deliciously. And one of the ways of doing that is this idea of, you know, as you said, going from nourishment to nirvana. And, of course, that is a, a grandiose statement. But it is true that by the way that you approach your food, you can open yourself to awakening your consciousness, deepening your spirituality. So, and, um, so oh, go ahead, yes. Oh, okay, so, but, but, so, so give, us, give us an example of how. How, so how, how, how do example, we do that? A wonderful example that we have in the book is of this man, Ted, who, as a child, was lacking a sense of spirituality. Or, oh, my goodness, I am so tongue-tied. As an adult, he was, um, <laughs> he was feeling a lack of divinity. He was feeling bereft of spirit, of the Creator. And he realized that as a child, he was raised in the Catholic Church, and he was, you know, children are very devout in the way that when he took communion, he believed that he was actually taking Christ into his body. Whereas an adult might think, oh, this is a symbolic representation. As a child, he really believed that that is what he was doing. But as an adult, he was constantly on a diet. He didn't eat bread. So after doing a consultation with my mom, he made this connection. And so he went out and he bought himself a really good, you know, French baguette or Italian artisan loaf. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but, you know, really good bread. This wasn't Wonder Bread. Right. And he ate just a teeny bit. He didn't eat the whole thing with intention. And he ate it with that intention of bringing more spirituality, more divinity into his life. And it triggered that earlier memory from childhood. And he, as a result, he began to feel closer to spirit. And one of the reasons this works is that our olfactory system, our sense of smell, is very closely related to our memory part of our brain. And so it triggered those memories from childhood of where he felt as though he was really bringing Christ into his life. So for for Ted eating the bread began to open him to more spirituality. That wouldn't work for everybody. It was because of his past experience. But for each person, we all have a past, and we all have things that remind us of other things. And you can use food to ignite more joy, to ignite more passion, more love. And you can also use, you can have memories that aren't so positive associated with food, but there are ways that you can turn them around. For instance, this is not a food memory, but for me, there's a certain soap 
that every time I smell it, I get knots in my stomach. Because it, it turns out it's the same soap that they used in my middle school. And my memory is so closely related to my sense of smell that I can't divorce the two. Mm-hmm. So if it is a food memory, you can actually rework something from the past. For instance, there's an example I was telling you about before, Cynthia, that we use in the book about a peanut butter sandwich. You know, and um, so say that you were a child and you were sitting at the you know kitchen counter and your mom was making you a peanut butter sandwich and she told you the Browns next door. She says, you know, those Browns next door, they might be rich, but they're not happy. Money doesn't buy happiness. And this is not a good or bad thing she's she's saying. She's just stating her opinion. But it fixes in your subconscious mind. And so throughout your life as an adult, you might find that you're struggling a little bit financially and you feel as though you can either be happy or you can have wealth. And the truth is you can have both. You can be happy and have the money. And one of the things is you can, and if that's still stuck in your mind is I can't have one, you know, I can only have one or the other. You can think, well, the more that I have, the more that I can give. So one thing that you can do is go back into that experience. Physically, take a peanut butter sandwich, eat that sandwich, because that idea that got so ingrained in your subconscious, it sounds crazy, but if it works, it doesn't matter, is connected for many people, not always, but, you know, it's possibly being connected to that peanut butter sandwich. So you eat that sandwich, smell that, that peanut butter, feel the texture, and rewrite that experience in the past in your mind. Just like how, you know when you wake up from a dream and you're not quite awake and not quite asleep? Right. And you can go back into the dream and kind of change it so you feel better? Yeah, you it's like an in-between same. phase. Exactly. So you can do the same with that peanut butter sandwich. While you eat it, either imagine your mother saying, wow, the Browns, they have money and and they're happy. Or, you know, if that doesn't feel true because maybe they weren't happy, rewrite it so that it is true or change it in your mind. And or say, where mom yeah, says, we're, we're wealthy and happy. Exactly. We and have it all. Not true, right. It, and if that's not true, you rewrite it in your mind. So it's, well, they might be rich and not happy and we're happy and not rich, but I can have both. And I can give more if I have more. Whatever it is, rewrite it and connect it to that peanut butter sandwich, and that will implant it more firmly in your brain. So, so because, and I think it's true. I mean, every, but I'm sure everyone has had an experience where it's like your grandmother's, you know, a particular food that your grandmother made that you just, you just love it. And you have that, and you you know you eat that food, and you might or you have that smell, and it reminds you of your this wonderful meal you had at your grandmother's or of your grandmother, and so certainly food affects us that way. But let's let's I want to segue into kinds of food because you have a whole chapter in the book where you talk about organic, free range, local, sustainable. You talk about something called perimeter shopping. And you talk about the GMOs as well. I, that, I know that's a mouthful, but speak a little yeah. bit about that. <laughs> it's a huge topic, which we probably can only scratch the surface of in our time together, but it is something I'm passionate about. But one thing I'd like to do before we get into that is talk about in the Mystic Cookbook, we do mention many ways that regardless of what you're eating, 
you can enhance the energy and vibration of that food and your experience of it. And one of the ways you can do that is simply by saying a blessing or giving grace. And we know this works because why would cultures and religions throughout time, across the world, throughout history, do it? Mm -hmm. They do it because it works. One of the reasons is it honors those at the table and that sense of community. Also, it opens your consciousness to the food and where it came from, who was involved, the farmers, the people at the market, the people who cooked the meal, also where it came from, the, the soil, the land, the wind, the rain, the sun, but also, you know, we live in a global community and it opens up our, and deepens our awareness to all of that when we say that blessing. And on a more both on a more woo-woo side, but also even physics backs this up, it actually can change the molecular structure of your food, simply putting that love and blessing into it. So regardless of what you're eating, because I do feel very strongly that it's important to love the food that you eat and eat the foods that you love, and it will have a positive or a more positive impact on your body. That said, it never hurts to start with the highest quality foods both for a physical, um, for your body, and also for the planet. And there are so many issues, as you mentioned, Cynthia, that, um, that affect us right now that can be kind of overwhelming when you go to the grocery store. You know, do you choose organic? Do you choose local? How Can you get what's in season? What about GMOs? And it can be daunting. And so in the, the final chapter of the Mystic Cookbook, as you mentioned, we have a little um, guide to, it's a bit of an overview to suggest different ways that you can approach your shopping. And one of the things you mentioned is perimeter shopping. And many food experts, Michael Pollan, Marion Nestle, they talk about this, of shopping the outside of the grocery store. Not not the outside, but you know, yeah, the along perimeter. the perimeter where all the fresh produce and all the uh, fresh foods typically are. And then the meats, yeah, it's to stay away, in other words, from the packaged Right, that for the most part, and some grocery stores are changing their, their setup, but for the most part in a grocery store, the fresh foods, as you said, are all along the outside. That's produce, uh, dairy aisle, meats, everything that is not then so processed tends to be on the outside. So that is a wonderful way to start your shopping and look for healthier foods. But then beyond that, you know, there's so many other questions. You know, how was it raised? Where are the seeds from? Are these genetically modified, which is something I am passionate about. Here in California, as you might know, we had a proposition last year on the ballot for labeling the GMOs, which unfortunately did not pass. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, genetically modified organisms are just that. They are foods that have the protein, either a new protein added to them or the one that's in it suppressed. And it's often crossbreeding. And it's different from hybridization, where that is taking certain traits of, say, one zucchini plant and mixing them with another zucchini plant to create a new one that has superior traits. Whereas genetic engineering is actually taking proteins from different species and mixing them in. And the challenge is that there's not been much testing done. In my research, I found that many countries outside of the U.S. decided to test GMOs before putting them in the marketplace. Whereas I found in much of my research, the U.S. decided to do the opposite. They put it in the marketplace, and then we'll see what happens. And much of the, the um, adverse effects of GMOs, we might not see for a few generations. 
So the future is still a bit unclear, which I find a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But so, and you know, there's also been, and this we write about in the Mystic Cookbook as well. There's been a huge upsurge in allergies, children's allergies, and we do write in the book they can be related to cellular memories, past life memories, things that have happened in our distant past or in our ancestry that can affect allergies, but also there are very environmental factors as well. And many leading experts are now connecting this upsurgence in allergies to GMOs because an allergy is your body's reaction to a protein that it doesn't recognize. And these these are molecular proteins. It's like you you can have an allergy to a protein in a strawberry, even though a strawberry is not meat. It's not something with protein per se. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what GMOs are. It is changing the protein structure. So I, I find that... Well, it's, it is. We are in the future, I guess. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and many um, call them frankenfoods. I mean, uh, many who are opposed to, the, to GMOs, you know, say these are, this isn't real food. This is like fake food. And that it can um, cause a host of digestive, sur- uh, um, digestive problems for certain individuals also. So, it, yeah, it is definitely something to be aware of when you shop. You know, and you, there's the whole gamut. You can be an activist about it or simply choose not to purchase those foods. And there's a wonderful Middle Eastern expression that is trust in God, but tie up your camel. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about this food issue, that in the Mystic Cookbook, we write about many things that you can do on a more emotional, on a more spiritual level to enhance your experience of your food and to enhance its the energy inherent in it, yet at the same time, it behooves you to to tie up the camel as well and buy the higher quality pro- products when you can, the fresh produce from your local farmer's market to avoid GMOs. And Meadow, and, you, um, you do mention that in the book because in the book you say we're not separate from the food we eat, that, you know, we're all connected. Um, it's all connected, the, the chain. And... Um, and, and that's, so that, that's part of the equation here, that there's not a big separation from, the, from us and the food we eat. And it is true on a physical and a you know, kind of mind, body, and spirit level. We are connected to our food spiritually when you connect with that, the energy of the animal. For instance, my um, ancestors on my mother's side are Native American heritage, and they talk about this idea of the giveaway, when an animal gives its life, they hunt, and the, the hunter does it with gratitude, and they talk about the animal presenting himself as giving his life. And in that way, they believe that they're taking on that spirit. And so in that way, we are connected on a spiritual level with our food, but then the physical level, of course, of taking in those minerals and vitamins and calories and fats and proteins, all of that into our body. So there are very... There are, you know, diverse ways that we are actually connected with our food, and we are one. Indeed. This is Cynthia Swan, and you're listening to WERU Radio, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 FM Bangor, and streaming at weru.org. My guest is Meadow Lynn, co-author of The Mystic Cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food. And... um, 
So Meadow, I want to, can, you've already alluded to this, so I'm going to dive into this um, question I had. Yeah. In, your, in your book, you do talk about your Cherokee ancestors, and you talk about how they call uh, the sacred circle of life the medicine wheel. And I just wanted you, I'd like you to speak a little more fully about that for listeners, how that also relates to eating the energy of the seasons, because you have um, quite a bit of information on that as well in the book. Well, the medicine wheel is, this. it's a symbolic representation of the forces that create life. It is the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. It's the four elements, air, water, fire, and earth. It also represents the cycles, the seasons. I'm not even going to try to list them right now because I know my brain's going to go blank. No, no, that's fine. That, that was great. That was great. Yeah, winter, summer, spring, and fall. Mm-hmm. The cycle of the seasons, it represents that wholeness that creates life. So we write in the book about the idea of eating with the seasons. And that, that there's two sides to that. There is, as we were talking about before, eating locally, eating seasonally, and that connects you to a sense of place, to where you live, to the produce that's available at that time. I, I love, for instance, when I lived in Maine, mm. August, September was blueberry season. Yeah. You know, the winter, the, the shrimp came in. It was very closely connected to the seasons and that you would wait for, you know, I would wait when I lived in Wiscasset where, you know, the time what was it, June, when the ice cream shops open up. You know, mm-hmm. not, yeah, yeah, you wait in fresh. anticipation for these foods because they're and so delicious, fresh. Right, exactly, and it connects you to that sense of place, to seasonality. But on a more energetic level, you can eat with the seasons. It doesn't have to be necessarily in season in order to ignite certain energy, certain feelings. Because you know that feeling you get in summer when it feels very expansive, Mm-hmm. And everything is possible. It's almost we like this feeling of standing on a mountain and throwing your arms out wide. And you look out at that vast horizon, that vast expanse in front of you, and you feel just so you can conquer the world, almost that opening feeling. Whereas winter is has a different energy, a different feeling. Winter is this time of kind of pulling inward and restoring your inner coffers. And resting, and you know, to me, winter is this warm blanket and a sizzling fire. Mm. You know, and spring is this time of new beginnings. So, we write, for instance, you could create a meal dedicated to the energy of spring, and you can do this either in the springtime or at a different time. It's a great meal to plan when you are starting something new, when you're planting those seeds that you will nurture and nourish, and they will grow into your autumn harvest. So create a meal where you can either have that feeling of spring or actually use spring foods, which for many people, they will vary from region to region, but it can be snap peas, leeks, first greens of the season, asparagus, maybe it's a spring lamb or eggs, or maybe it's that bright yellow butter that comes in the spring when the cows have been eating the fresh green grass. There are many different foods that represent spring, and you can create a meal dedicated to new beginnings, to that new energy. And that can create that template that it's a symbolic representation of the events that you are um, pulling forth into your life. So it's kind of, you know, the way you're saying this, it, and, and you write about this more fully in the book, but it, it's like a ritual, 
It's like the the sitting down to sitting down to pr- the preparation of the meal and uh, and and the choices to create the meal. Like using spring as an example, as you're starting, you're hoping for some new beginning or this is a new fresh start or something new, a new endeavor uh, that and that you would eat a meal and um, almost have a, a, a in, in a almost a that in itself is a ritual to uh, help to propel like a, a physicalization of what you're hoping for, uh, hoping to, to manifest or to have kind of help with from the unseen almost, the unseen realm. Is that, is that what the essence it, of that? It is. I love that word ritual. And it is one thing that we write about a lot in the Mystic Cookbook that, and it tends to be lacking in our modern society that we, you know, we go, go, go. And as far as, the, you know, the cycle of the seasons, many of us, we wake up in our air-conditioned homes or heated homes, depending on the season. We get in our air-conditioned or heated cars, and we drive to office buildings and park underground, and, you know, and go into these climate-controlled buildings, and we, are, we lack that connection to the seasons. We lack that, and we eat our food on the fly while we're standing in front of the refrigerator or at our desk in front of our computer. And that sense of celebration and ritual is missing from our lives, both from kind of the seasons, the cycles, and from our food. And um, they did a study at the University of Pennsylvania in the psychology department. There's a um, professor named Paul Rosen, where he asked French women to describe chocolate cake. And Mm. most of the French women used the word celebration. And the American women said guilt. And then when asked about an egg, the French woman simply said meal. And the American woman said cholesterol. But here in the U.S., we often reduce our food either to its nutritive qualities, in the example of the egg with the cholesterol, Mm -hmm. or we assign emotions to it. Certain foods are good or bad, or these ones I'm guilty about eating, or this one I can imagine fat growing on my leg while I eat it. You know, we have a very strong sense of black and white with our food. And we're lacking this sense of celebration, as the French woman described with cake, and the sense of ritual. That food, you know, throughout history in many cultures is at the heart of celebration, of rituals. And you see that when we're talking about spring meals and the Passover Seder. There is that symbolic ritual associated with food that does set forth that template for spring, for new beginnings. And so we believe very strongly, and we write a lot in the Mystic Cookbook about this idea of food for celebration, food for ritual, and it can bring more awareness into our life, more spirituality, more you know, nourishment to nirvana, but also fun and delicious <laughs> right right and you you and I uh, you have like that quote you have Gandhi's quote there is more to life than increasing its speed you utilize um, some of these wonderful quotes in the book and you talk about eating slow so we can simply connect to our soul instead of like I remember when I was working on my master's you know I was eating all my meals in the cars I was driving up to Orno it was crazy <laughs> and, you, you know, it's just everything is rush, rush, rush. And, it, and you lose that um, you lose that pleasure of taking your time and really being able to enjoy your food and more fully digest your food. But I want to I want to ask you to tell another story because um, I, I love 
uh, the Mayan superfood, cacao. And, and you talked about the chocolate cake. So this is what kind of uh, put this into my head. So you talk about um, uh, a story where you talk about this Mayan superfood. And, um, and you talk about it in, conjun- in conjunction with introducing like love alchemy into your kitchen, so to speak. Can, can, you, can you share that story with listeners about um, the, that superfood? Yes, of course. So we do. We write about creating different meals for different purposes. For instance, you can create a meal dedicated to abundance or a meal dedicated to love and romance. And people often ask me about aphrodisiacs. And I have kind of a multifaceted response to that. But, you know, science has shown that certain foods do have certain enhancing properties. However, probably, you know, they say in a chili pepper there's capsaicin, which has a quote-unquote enhancing property. Chances are you would have to eat so many chili peppers to actually get a quantity of capsaicin that would affect you in that way that you'd be spitting fire. Yet, the aphrodisiacs work for a couple of reasons. One, because it does have certain chemical properties that can be enhancing. Also, there is a collective belief. When enough people believe that something works in a certain way, it can. You know, we see that with the placebo. Mm-hmm. In medicine, they give, you know, saline injections or salt pills. And people believe they're taking the medicine, and so they get the benefits of that medicine. So it's the same when we believe strongly about a certain food and the same for aphrodisiacs. And I, I'm getting to the cacao. <laughs> uh, no, I know. I'm, 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 this is great. This is great. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. And so, and another reason, say, with the chili pepper, that it has perhaps those um, qualities is its color. It's red. Red is that color of passion and vigor, and it's also associated with sensuality. And, you know, in the more kind of new age world, associated with the base chakra, Mm-hmm. which is also has those associated properties of passion and vigor and sensuality. So for all of those reasons, for instance, the chili pepper can indeed have, and now I can never say this word, I need to learn how to say aphrodisiacal. I don't even know if that's the word, but aphrodisiacal so, properties. Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so I, you're, with the cacao, I believe you are, um, I have a recipe for a mystic, what I call a mystic elixir for love. Yes, and I want you to share that with listeners. Yes, so it is a, um, it's hot chocolate, mm-hmm. but um, but it's extra special. And you can create it with intention, with the intention of calling forth more love, more joy, more passion into your love, into your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a good slip there. That was good. Mm-hmm. And, and um and this can be love of all different types. It can be love for self, love for others, or that extra va-va-boom romantic love mm-hmm. when you create it with passion and intention. So I've already mentioned one of the ingredients in this mystic elixir for love, and that is chili pepper. But additionally, it has, of course, chocolate, which is cacao, which the um, ancient Mayans believed to have very special properties. Montezuma actually drank 50 cups a day. Legend has it. <laughs> that's <laughs> that a lot of 50. that's a lot of cups. That is a lot of cups of liquid regardless of it being chocolate or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. But legend has it he had 50 cups a day to increase his 
first days, they didn't sweeten it. Primarily, the cacao was mixed with some maize, which was a type of corn mm-hmm. and water, and it was a frothy, bitter beverage. But over time, sweeteners were added. And in my recipe, I used honey. One, because I love honey. But also, honey itself has special properties. It is an antibacterial, so it is um, wonderful for, for that particularly, but also bees in many cultures considered divine. They are the intermediaries between heaven and earth. So when you take the ambrosia, the honey that they've created, and you mix that into your hot chocolate, to your mystic elixir of love, you're also mixing in that energy, that divine energy. So you mix this cacao that that throughout history, the, you know, the Mayans had this belief that it was full of vigor and vitality and could increase virility. With the capsaicin, the chili pepper, that many believe have aphrodisiacal (laughs) qualities, Mm -hmm. and the honey that's divinely brought to us, as many cultures believe, and then you mix that with um, either milk or, I I don't do so well with milk, so I use almond milk, you know, whatever works best for you. And then the special ingredient is as you sprinkle the chili pepper into this blend of honey and cocoa powder that you've used, you do so with intention. You do it with the intention of bringing that love, that passion, that romance into your life. You can even say an affirmation. You know, with you know, as I sprinkle this chili pepper, and you can. I kind of imagine when I was in high school, I was in the play Macbeth, and I was one of the witches. You know, and mm-hmm. you, you go around the cauldron, boil, 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 boil in trouble. trouble. And I like. I'm I'm kind of dramatic, so I like to kind of envision that I'm doing that, you know, and and putting that in that intention, that love for opening my heart, for bringing forth more passion, more romance into my life. And then as you drink it, you feel what it would feel like to be in a romantic relationship, to feel that joy, to feel that passion, and really feel it. And it can indeed be not only delicious, but it can be fun and and it can work. It can bring forth more love, more joy, more passion into your life if you do it with the intention. With the intention as you cook it. Well, I, I want to talk about another kind of helper in the kitchen that you talk about in the book. And you tell a story about your own kitchen angel and an experience that you had when you were cooking a five-course meal. So talk about the kitchen angel. Does everybody really have a kitchen angel? I believe they do if they if they ask. You know, they're not going to come if you don't you don't ask. And I for years thought, well, that is just weird. <laughs> How could you have a kitchen angel? And but I used to say it. People would say because um, as you said in your introduction, for 18 years since the summer I graduated high school, I have been cooking for the residential training retreats that my mom has had held at our um, ranch here in California. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people would say to me, how do you do it? For two weeks, now they're nine days, I did all the cooking, three meals a day, multiple courses, and in rather small kitchens. Wow. And sometimes I, don't, I wouldn't know how I would do it. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, meal after meal, there really isn't time to kind of, you're barely cleaning up from one meal before starting the next. Right. And so I used to say, oh, well, I have a kitchen angel. And it was almost tongue-in-cheek that I would kind of say it like, well, of course, you know, I'm getting divine help. Mm -hmm. But then I had an experience a few years ago that made me realize that it it wasn't tongue-in-cheek. 
I really did have a kitchen angel, this being that aided me, that assisted me in the kitchen. And a few times I have had experiences where I've asked for his or her. I, I think I have more feeling it's a male energy, but for his help consciously. And then so with gratitude where he really has come to my aid and it has been absolutely astounding. And the story you mentioned was a few years ago, I was making a five-course Vietnamese Southeast Asian themed meal for one of these events. I was cooking for 25 people. It was the middle of summer. It's over 100 degrees, probably even hotter in the kitchen. Oh, my goodness. And and I only had two hours to make this whole meal for 25 people because I'd been cleaning up from lunch and then going to the grocery store and putting the groceries away. And I had been perhaps a bit, um, shall I say, overambitious in my meal plan for that evening. And there was only about an hour left before it was time to serve. And I pride myself on getting the meals out exactly on time. Mm-hmm. And I was still trying to peel the winter squash for a red curry I was making. I hadn't started the salad. I was still soaking the rice. I hadn't even started a stir fry. And there was only an hour left. Oh, my goodness. And I, th- I realized there is no <laughs> way. I just can't do it. But I had to. I had no other choice. So I decided for the first time that I was going to consciously ask for the help of my kitchen angel. And I, you know, I just asked him, please, I implore, Tom, yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the weeds here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And this is what's amazing. The clock stopped moving. And to me, that even still when I say that, it sounds crazy because if I heard somebody else saying that, I would come up with a million reasons to justify why that happened. Because yeah, like the batteries went out or the batteries stopped, you know what I mean? Or right, something of course, like that. because it, sound, it sounds crazy. Like how, you know, and I'm, you know, I was grown up kind of around spirituality in the new age, but I tend to be more reserved and a little more conservative when it comes to, like, how can that be? Mm-hmm. But I promise, the clock stopped moving. And while it stopped, I continued to peel the winter squash and chop it up. And if you've ever peeled, uh, I think it was, oh, I can't remember, it was butternut squash or a different, but it's really hard. It is. a long time, and then you multiply that by 25 people. But I continued to chop and peel the winter squash, get the stir fry going, get the rice on. And once I was starting to finally, like, get a handle on the meal and relax a little bit, the clock started moving. And then when there were probably about 15 minutes before it was time to serve, and I still had to make the salad and put out some of the other side dishes and still thinking, oh, my God, there's only 15 minutes. I, the clock stopped. It helped me. But now, oh, my God, what did I do? Right. I there's only 15 minutes. Five women from class arrived in the kitchen, and they said, we're here to help. What do you need? Amazing. And with their help, I was able to get everything finished and on the table exactly on time. And I felt as though asking for my kitchen angel's help, he had come both in divine form by stopping the clock so that I could continue to do what I needed to do. And then, in a way, I felt as though he'd sent these women in physical form to actually do the final touches at the end that they can't be done in advance. And that both in divine and physical form, he had he'd helped me. And it it sure made a believer out of me, and I no longer say I have a kitchen angel tug-in-cheek. Now I say it with um, with pride. With pride. I have a kitchen angel, and my kitchen angel helped me deliver that meal. 
and, exactly. and, and, and it's interesting. Well, it's in keeping with everything in your book and in terms of uh, the, the divine that all this help is available. That, that's the feeling I get through reading your book. There's all kinds of help available to us, but we have to remember to ask for help. That's so true. Ask with help and, and do so in a state in a, of gratitude. Yes. That I think that is a really important component to whatever we do, is to be grateful for our food, regardless of what it is or where it's come from, and be grateful for the plants and animals that have given their life, and be grateful for, for the guidance that we get, whether it's from a kitchen angel, a friend, a family member. In, indeed. And I, I loved some of the names because you mentioned gratitude. I was thinking in particular some of the names of your recipes, like gratitude granola and prosperity rice. I mean, I just, I loved the, they were also recipes I felt that I could actually do and, and follow and do well. But I also liked, did you come up with those those names? I, I did. <laughs> well, I, 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 just, I just loved it when I saw that. It was like, oh, gratitude granola. What a great way to call your, you know, your cereal, uh, gratitude granola. And now, the, the, oh, uh, go, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted oh, you. I was going to say that um, I'm not sure if it, how much of that story ended up in the book. Toward the end, we had to, um, we, we had way too many words, so we had to cut it way down. But the, the story of where the word gratitude granola came from, one morning I'd woken up and I was really hungry and I hadn't been to the grocery store in a long time. And I found a frozen pizza in the freezer and that was about it. <laughs> I thought, mm, I really don't want to start my day with frozen pizza. So I went through the cupboards and I'd kind of woken up feeling this sense of this sense of gratitude. I'd been thinking a lot about how in my life there's places where I feel lack. I would like to get married. I would like to have children. And I was thinking that, you know, I don't have those things. And sometimes that is painful. But also I realized that as a result of not having those things, my life was the way that it was. And I had many things that I couldn't have had. had you know, I had a family that, you know, I was, thinking, I was drinking my morning tea leisurely and I was reading the paper and I thought, well, if I had children, if I had a husband, I wouldn't have this time to myself. So I was already kind of in this state of gratitude of realizing like, although there are things that I want, I also have a blessed life as well. And then I woke up and I you know, got out of bed and I was like, I'm so hungry. What do I do? I can't mm -hmm. find anything. And it kind of jolted me out of my state of gratitude. And then I started going through the cupboard and I found a whole big jar of rolled oats and I found nuts and raisins and other dried fruit. And I thought, I'm going to make granola. And then kind of continuing in this state of gratitude, this, you know, we say attitude of gratitude, I thought, wow, I am so grateful that I buy rolled oats, but I don't really care to eat oatmeal that often. So I always have oats in the cupboard. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I, I'm so grateful that I buy dried fruit and nuts in bulk. So I always have it. And so I created Gratitude Granola as a result of that experience. And it is actually, it's one of the most popular recipes in the Mystic Cookbook. And I know during the holidays this year, many people made Gratitude Granola and then shared it with their friends along with the recipe as a holiday gift. Exactly. And, and in, I love that. And in Maine, people kind of sometimes, and yeah. And, and you can make it as a gift. You can make up a batch of Gratitude Granola and put it in your holiday basket for somebody. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to WERU Radio, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. If you just joined us, I'm Cynthia Swan, and my guest is Meadow Lynn, and she is the co-author of the Mystic Cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food. And um, this was, yes, your publishing house, of course, is Louise Hay, is the Hay House publisher. And also some contact info, www.meadowlin, M-E-A-D-O-W-L-I-N-N.com, and Meadow's blog, savortheday.com. And, of course, if you're interested in knowing more about the Mystic Cookbook, you can um, get onto that website as well, themysticcookbook.com. So I want to segue over to, I found it so interesting. I learned so much about these little historical tidbits and and also about other cultures in your book. But you talk about a Zen meal. And And we've got probably about 15 minutes left, but can you talk about what is a Zen meal meadow and, and, and why in this um, context do we need to feed what is called the hungry ghost? My mom, she lived in a Zen Buddhist monastery for two and a half years. And mm. she had had a very difficult childhood and early, you know, teenage years and early 20s. And she found herself in this monastery, and for the first time in her life, it was a time of calm and peace, away from the trauma of being sexually abused by her father, living with a mentally ill mother, being, um, you know, and this is, of course, a story for many other <laughs> you know. And, wow, and yeah. She was, she was shot and left for dead by, by a crazy man on the side of the road when oh. she was 17 mm. and oh. had a resulting near-death experience. So she, she didn't have an easy time of it. But when she ended up in this Zen Buddhist monastery, it was the first bit of peace that she'd had in 20-some years. And it, it wasn't necessarily easy. When you are in a Buddhist monastery, and I don't think I could ever do it or want to do it, mm-hmm. you do what's called sitting, sitting station, which is a type of meditation. And they do it for up to 16 hours a day in the full lotus position, which is um, it's like crossing your legs, except you put your ankles up on top of your legs. Right. It's not very comfortable. <laughs> right. And, and if the Zen masters think that you are thinking, they will actually come and whack you with a stick to make you not think. Okay. So it's not always easy, but but it did bring her some sort of peace and solace, which she hadn't had in the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. So have, that was the genesis, in a way, for for this bit in the Mystic Cookbook about creating a Zen wheel. And, of course, you don't have to have had the trauma that she had or the, the respite from it in the monastery to create a Zen meal. And it's... Zen, we often use that word in English to mean something that is sparse or spare. And a meal can, Zen meal can be that as well. It's something that's very refined, very delicate, very focused and clear. And um, I'm trying to see where, where I'm going with this, but so you can create a meal like that that is very, especially when you need some relaxing time, some sometimes to focus. It can be a wonderful meal for that purpose. So it's like a meal as a meditation almost. That, that's a wonderful, yes, thank you. You jumped in when I was starting to lose my No, words. no, that but I knew. Good, but, no, but that is the wonderful way to say it, meal as meditation. All right, and, so I'm sorry. So, but oh, no, go ahead. What about, what about the hungry ghost piece of that? 
what, 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 where does that, that, you speak about that in your book, that you have to save some food to feed the hungry ghost. And in different cultures, I believe in Chinese Buddhism, it's different than in Japanese Buddhism. But exactly as you said, you leave a few kernels of rice to feed, to feed the hungry ghost. And that is, in different cultures, there's different meaning behind that. But it's this idea that there is this other part of ourselves that, that we're feeding, that, or it is that ghost that, um, and now my, my mom can speak about this much better than I can. No, no, but I, but, but I just thought that concept was so interesting uh, because I didn't know about it from the, the Zen side, but I know like in the goddess uh, tradition that many times when you come, you know, when I would gather, um, when we would gather, we would have a plate that we would make a special plate and leave that for the goddess, or it was this idea of always leave a few kernels of food on your plate, um, you know, it, it, this whole concept of for, for the hungry or for, for, for this invisible, um, you know, this invisible presence, that whole invisible realm. And it made me think of uh, the tradition of, um, oh, in, in, in Mexico, the, the Day of the Dead, when people um, go in, in groups and they'll go into the cemetery and they bring the food and they're feasting and whatnot in the cemeteries of where their loved ones lie, the, the bodies of their loved ones lie. And food is always also a big part of it and plates of food left out as well. And I just find this whole concept uh, was interesting. And in your book, you introduce it in, these, in, in other cultures. And I just didn't realize that it was something that kind of was this golden thread that's woven through many indigenous cultures. You see it in Judaism as well, too. They, they make a plate or leave food out for Elijah. Ah. So it does, as you said, it goes through many cultures. And I, I think it's that connection of the physical with the spiritual, that we are connected to our ancestors through not only our thoughts, our feelings, but the food gives us this, this more palpable connection. Right. And, you know, I just, this just popped into my mind, you know, like the DNA of food, you know, our DNA, the DNA of food, everything has, you know, and how we ingest that. And that is the interconnectedness um, where we're, we're so connected to also what we eat and, and to the earth. What's your favorite recipe? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't have children, as I said before, but I feel like <laughs> like asking which of your children do you love more? Oh, goodness. <laughs> you know, I, I love them all so much. And, of course, the ones that are in the Mystic Cookbook I chose because they are some of my favorites. But I also, I constantly like to come up with new recipes, and I'm inspired by what I find at the farmer's market or what's fresh and local down the street or what's in my garden that... Um, I like that diversity, that newness, but in the recipe, oh my goodness. Well, you know, it is summer, mm -hmm. so I will choose a couple summer recipes from the book because I know there are, um, I I like eating, as we, you know, we talk about eating with the seasons for the different energies, but also Mm -hmm. I like eating, um, you know, there are certain foods that pair better with certain seasons. And one of my favorites is, I'm actually looking out the window right now at my quickly growing garden that seems to have way too much zucchini uh. at the <laughs> and one of my favorite recipes from the mystic cookbook are asian zucchini pancakes and it's a wonderful way to use 
that abundance of zucchini that anyone who has a uh, vegetable garden in the summer <laughs> knows about. And you use grated zucchini, and I mixed it with a little um, what's called sweet rice flour. It's a glutinous rice, which does not contain gluten. It's a sticky rice. Mm-hmm. gives a little bit of a chewy quality and some eggs. And you make a pancake out of it, kind of like a latka that you would see yeah. at um, a, a Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And then I make a an Asian sauce with tamari and green onions and sesame oil and I think a little sugar to add a little sweetness to it. And they are so delicious. That and sounds delicious. And they are easy to make. They're healthy. And it uses that abundance of zucchini from the garden. And that is one of my favorites at this time of year. That sounds fabulous. Now, do you have a favorite beverage? I mean, I know you drink tea, but do you also, and, and of course we talked about the, the Mayan cacao, you know, or hot chocolate or hot cocoa. Um, are there others that you, that you, is there a particular beverage that you kind of lean toward in this time of year as we're hitting into, getting into full-blown summer here? Well, not totally full-blown, but entering into it. Well, to be honest, Probably water is one of my favorite beverages. <laughs> but, yeah, but good, I live good in choice. wine country. I live in wine country. You do. So at this time of year, I love, and I also studied in France for a few years. So I do love a crisp rosé for picnics or a nice cold white wine or, oh, goodness. Uh, well, red wine, depending on what I'm eating. Yeah, I love it all. <laughs> yes, yes, it, it's all good. And 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 lastly, you know, you say that cooking is an artistic and a meditative endeavor for you. Um, did you know when you were this little three-year-old making the tahini balls that down the road you were going to be entering this world of you know, that you were born to be a chef, that you were going to go down this path, and that this path of food would be such a spiritual path for you? Did you did you know this at an early age, or was this something that you just evolved into? I think it was a little bit of both. I think as a young child, I always knew it was something that I loved, that I was passionate about. But then as I went to school, I got into academia and I thought that that was my path and I became a school teacher as you mentioned in your introduction and I taught for eight years four of which um, I taught in Wiscasset, Maine mm. yeah. and um, so I had I went another way and I always cooked on my weekends my drives home from work I also taught in LA and I had a 45 minute commute and I spent the entire drive home thinking about what I would make for dinner and it was at that point I realized that this passion maybe needed to be more than a hobby, that I needed to, to do it full-time, to share it in that way. So I think it was a little bit of both, that, you know, sometimes you feel as though you need to go a different way. And many of us, we have these passions, these talents that we subdue because we feel as though we need to have a certain type of career or go a certain way. And it's only when you realize what, what gives you the most joy. And often it's when you think back to what you did as a child, what you were passionate about as a child, where you can find what gave you the most joy and really live that passion. And not, it, was, it was really scary to quit my job and give up benefits and a salary. But also I knew that I needed to, to try, at least, to live that passion. And I love teaching, too, but it was different than um, this, this connection I feel to the creative process of cooking. And the artistry of it. Now, you know, you you and your mom are very 
spiritually uh, inclined. You're very spiritual people. Were you like that from the time you were a little girl, Meadow? You know, because I was raised in it, it's kind of like a child who's raised in a specific culture or religion. Mm -hmm. It's all you know. So I, I didn't know any different yet. And I went to school and I wanted to fit in and be like everybody else. So, you know, I didn't necessarily go to the, the lunch table at school and say, so how's your fourth chakra today? You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know so for many years, I kind of pushed that aside because I, I wanted to be and do what everybody else was doing and being. And it's only been really in the past few years that I've been working really closely with my mom that I have felt more comfortable and less nervous about sharing that side and really kind of taking it on and owning it. I wrote a blog post, I don't know, maybe a year ago called Welcoming Weird and realizing that, <laughs> I love you know, that. Welcoming Weird. That, that, yeah, that it, it is weird, but it's also part of who I am and welcoming that because for a long time I felt, you know, as though I was weird, but that was that was a different part of me you're not okay or I didn't want to share that and now I am I'm becoming more comfortable with kind of welcoming that into my life and and being weird if you will <laughs> well I I think it's 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 a thread that is all throughout um throughout the cookbook in terms of the spiritual aspect of of everything about the food that you make. I mean, from the thought process of what you're going to make, the recipe itself, how you um, gather the ingredients for a recipe. And even um, I was struck by um, some of the things you spoke about in terms of like spiritual hospitality or hospitality as a transformative practice. I'd never looked at it that way of, you know, communal meals where there's special occasions that can become also these um, delicious spiritual and transformative events for not only um, those that are hosting, but for the people who gather there. And I was, and, and your, your artistry comes out too, you and your mom in the book, because you even talk about how you kind of set the, the theme and, and the idea of a table. I, I have altars in my home, but I never thought of my kitchen table or a dining room table as each place setting being almost a mini altar. And I, I found something really beautiful about that in terms of honoring the guests. And again, that food is a spiritual experience. And um, oh, you so you so beautifully and succinctly put the book together. <laughs> well, I, I, I just I, I really was um, I was touched by a lot of the stories. And like I said, it was unlike uh, any cookbook I'd ever seen. And unfortunately, our, our time has gone. So parting, any parting comment or, or word to our listeners, um, Meadow? I guess the main thing I would say is the motto that I like to live by, and I think I already mentioned it once, but love what you eat and eat what you love. And that will bring more, more joy and more savoriness into all aspects of your life. And we thank you for that. So... Um, signing off here on Healthy Options, Cynthia Swan with my guest and co-author of the Mystic Cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food, Meadow Lynn. And again, you can, um, you can um, join Meadow on her blog, Savor the Day, or Meadow, M-E-A-D-O-W-L-I-N-N.com, and also the mysticcookbook.com. Thanks for your time, Meadow. Thanks for joining us on Healthy Options. Thank you so much.